welcome to another episode of the Academy of Security's Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is August 14th, 2019. Today we'll be focusing on the current unrest in Hong Kong and the People's Republic of China's response to the riots. We'll also discuss how this may be an indicator for possible scenarios regarding Taiwan. Today, I'm joined by Lieutenant General Bob Walsh, our macro strategist, Peter Chur, and Rachel Washburn. We're gonna have Peter start it off. Hi, this is Peter Chur. We're here to talk about Hong Kong today, what is going on in Hong Kong. It has attracted a lot of attention from the market and for good reason. I think there are a couple of things that are driving market reaction to Hong Kong. One is, that we have seen for the past several years, the market has kind of ignored the fact that Hong Kong is really now part of China. And the show of force by China is really solidifying the fact that Hong Kong is no longer really independent. It is part of China. And what we are all watching now to see is how this plays out. The more aggressive and violent the Chinese are in terms of putting down the protests, the more likely I think we are to see the U.S. retaliate with really difficult terms on trade. Europe would probably have to go along backing us on tough terms for trade with China. And that's probably what would really drive markets more than anything else is upping the ante in terms of trade. At some point, we also bring in what happens with Taiwan. So we really need to know, I think, much better how these protests started, where they stand, and what options are likely to occur from China. That's where we want to bring in General Walsh. Uh, thank you, uh, Peter, for that uh, that great introduction. Um, and and what I would say, you know, if you step back on this, you know, it's been in the news as of late, but even back into uh, June, it was in the news as the protests were starting. But a lot of these anti-government protests started all the way back in April, uh, and it really started around a controversial uh, extradition bill that would have allowed uh, Hong Kongers to be extradited to mainland China. In the end, those protests were successful and causing Hong Kong's leader, Carrie Lam, to rescind that bill to extradite you know, uh, citizens to mainland China. However, the protests really, if you really kind of think hard about this, really gets at the, really the whole idea of, of Hong Kong being a very unique status or autonomous region that Beijing promised at the end of the British rule in 1997. And a lot of the protesters see that a lot of their rights that Hong Kongers have uh, have been slowly eroding over time uh, as China has uh, really um, kind of taken control, as Peter says, that Hong Kong is part of China, but it also is part of China under what um, has been considered or called one country, two systems, after that reunification took place. So if you, you look at the uh, Hong Kong system, it is two systems, and the Hong Kong system has a, uh, a law called basic law, and it's really the essence that guarantees the freedoms of the citizens. And it's different than the, the freedom of the citizens in mainland China. And so the protesters are really trying to drive home the fact that they've got in the basic law the right to protest, the right for free press, and the right to free speech. So the extremists are really trying in some ways to provoke the police to demonstrate that Hong Kong's government is moving away from the agreed to 1997 um, agreement towards the system that's in mainland China. And, and some, you know, there's extremes in protests and there's no really clear 
uh, view of is any one person or any one group in charge of these protests. They're very random in a lot of ways uh, by who's running them. Some want global recognition and some on an extreme would say some of the protesters want to incite a popular uprising and demand independence. So there's risk here in the protesters for alienating the population away from their cause. What I'm curious about is Ch mainland China's response. Um, obviously, it's a pretty insular society, very streamlined, um, and that really depends on a, a real positive control um, over its population. Um, now, given how China wants to change its status on the world stage and it has no more global influence, do you see that impacting or tempering their response. Um, obviously, we're seeing headlines and, and pictures and images of uh, military equipment being positioned at the border. Um, what is your view on, on how mainland China could respond should the protests continue to escalate and um, you know, really impact you know, society and operations in Hong Kong? That's a, that's a great, uh, great question because I think in a lot of ways uh, China's walking a very fine line here. The one thing to to, to step back, it's kind of a, a basis of this whole thing is the majority of Hong Kong residents are, uh, really support the current rule. So very only a very small percentage, and a recent survey said that really from, uh, on the survey, uh, Hong Kong respondents really were, uh, were satisfied um, with Hong Kong's leadership, which in many ways is viewed as moving more towards China. Only 27% said they supported it. And, and additionally, support for mainland China uh, over the last year has dropped from 38 to 27%. So very low support for uh, the Chinese government. But um, what we've seen with to the Chinese government and also Hong Kong's government is they've refused to really give in to the protesters' demands. And we've seen the Hong Kong police, uh, however, showing restraint. So from a global norm standpoint, you've seen the Hong Kong police operating very much in normal accepted riot control methods because I think both the Hong Kong government and also uh, the Chinese government uh, and the Chinese Communist Party certainly see what went on in Tiananmen Square and the fallout in global um, repercussions from that. Um, now, some pieces that have kind of gone into this that are trying to, as we, as we all see how China is very good at uh, using social media, um, of using uh, new technologies to track population, uh, track what citizens are doing, and also to influence it ways in a gray zone way, which we've seen the Russians also do, is one of the things we've seen is one of the Chinese officials came out this week and said um, that the growing violence is starting to take on the characteristics of terrorism and was very explicit in the use of that word terrorism. Uh, to try to influence not only uh, Chinese citizens, Hong Kong citizens, but also the global population. Um, we've also seen Chinese officials come out and blame the U.S. for the interference. And we've certainly seen uh, U.S., the American flag, uh, with the protesters, and that goes to kind of lead towards that. And they've been very clear on telling the U.S. to butt out of any um, uh, 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 protests that are going on inside Hong Kong. Um, just yesterday, they also canceled, from a military standpoint, the U.S. had two uh, port visits. We routinely, with our U.S. Navy ships, visit into uh, Taiwan, or into uh, Hong Kong, and the USS Green Bay and Lake Erie were supposed to 
uh, visit there later this summer and fall, and those visits have been turned off. Um, uh, the, the head of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, which is a mainland China um, you know, uh, person, said that recently these demonstrations and protests have the color, he used the word color revolution characteristics. And that was really an analogy to what went on at the end of the uh, Soviet Union in the fall of the Berlin Wall as the uh, Russian influence lagged and we saw the breakaway of Eastern European uh, countries from U.S. influence. So they used that term again to kind of incite that this is what could be going on inside uh, Hong Kong. So what we've seen in the Chinese national press uh, run by the state government is where it was originally focused on censorship, we now see them very focused on clash on the clashes themselves with the police, law and order, uh, describing them as um, uh, violent mobs and criminals. And this again is to turn the Chinese national opinion, the national the the Chinese population opinion against the uh, protests. Um, and then you brought up the point about the. Uh, the acts of intimidation and what we have seen and it's been put on Chinese national news is the uh, the buildup of or massing of uh, Chinese people's armed police now not the Chinese people army but the Chinese people's armed police were massing in Shenzhen across the border from Hong Kong and that was uh, in the press yesterday that uh, even President Trump uh, acknowledged that uh, that massing on the border so really, uh, again, they're kind of walking a fine line of trying to quell and influence the protests, but at the same time, not um, inflame widespread outrage uh, and undermine what they see right now as the long path to success with the one country, two um, systems. So President Xi, again, does not want to see another Tiananmen Square. And uh, going back to Peter's point, there's a lot of global interest in this. And also, President Xi knows the, the, the Chinese economy has slowed, and also there's risk of, uh, with Hong Kong being the, the really a world financial center and a key point out of, uh, uh, of China for uh, Chinese economy. We've seen the Hong Kong stock market uh, fall, and, uh, and we also see those uh, repercussions coming from the protests. Thanks, General Walsh. So I guess we continue to watch China. We see how this plays out. We'll keep on touch with markets. It does feel, though, like our view is that there is real risk that it escalates in China. And I do think if it escalates in China, we are going to see further tensions in trade. And that's impacting stock markets. And is one of the reasons I kind of remain, which is one of the reasons I remain bearish right now on stocks. I think we're not pricing in the full potential of a really disruptive trade war. Sir, perhaps this is not a necessary point or maybe at this point um, way too soon to evaluate, but I am curious and I do find it interesting to consider Taiwan in the bigger picture of popular and political protests in and around China. Of course, the United States remains and continues to have a one China policy, but we have seen a increase of military sales to Taiwan and increase in military operations in and around Taiwan and through the Straits. How do you think China, first and foremost, views their response and actions 
against these types of protests in the context of Taiwan? And more importantly, how do you think Taiwan is preparing or viewing the mainland China response to the protests in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think if from a, a Taiwan standpoint, Taiwan watches very closely of what goes on in uh, Hong Kong. Because always, um, you know, for many years, since back into the 70s with the Taiwan Relations Act and a U.S. acknowledgement that Taiwan was part of one China. Um, that approach, when the British um, uh, pulled out of Taiwan, or excuse me, pulled out of Hong Kong in 1997, and came up with really basically the same uh, policy or framework of one country, two systems, that then allows Taiwan to kind of view of what goes on in Hong Kong could eventually go on in uh, Taiwan. So they use that as kind of a measuring stick of how that policy is working. And they see the crackdowns by the Chinese government is really an erosion of the citizens' rights um, that we talked about in that basic law as a move towards communist totalitarian rule and more of that communist structure. So this will lead to Taiwanese population resistance to that Chinese rule, and I think greater support for the anti-Chinese president, the current Taiwan president, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, and she right now is up for election in January of 2020, and she's agreed to run again. And she comes from more of a liberal democratic party that does not recognize the One China framework, uh, as Beijing really looks at that as really the inviolable uh, framework that has to be the case, not only in Hong Kong, but also the reunification of uh, Taiwan in the future. So this is adding friction between the U.S. and China. Uh, and you would have seen really last month that uh, the U.S. under President Trump has stepped up arms sales to Taiwan. Uh, and this is in accordance with the uh, Taiwan Relations Act and tentatively approved the sale of over $2 billion worth of military hardware to Taiwan. Uh, and as a result of that sales that China, China renounced, um, from the U.S., they have uh, increased Chinese military exercises off of Taiwan by both the pe uh, People's Liberation Navy and the People's uh, Liberation Army. If I could just add one, one last point, Rachel, I think the worst case for all this would be a collapse of the government in Hong Kong uh, from a Taiwan standpoint, the collapse of the Hong Kong government. China, uh, whether it's the Chinese People Police Force, army going in there, but the Hong Kong government failing to the point where China's intervention is required, and that leads to the de uh, causing down the road of Taiwan declaring independence. This was pro would probably be the worst place scenario for both Taiwan and the U.S. based on the, uh, the friction and the touchy relationships we have going on with uh, China. And make one last topic we should probably bring up is what's going on with North Korea. Obviously, the focus has been on Hong Kong, China's influence, um, you know, China's control over Hong Kong, China's potential influence in what's going on with Taiwan. But just a couple weeks ago, North Korea was, you know, firing test rockets again. There was some dialogue back and forth with President Trump. Will China try and exert influence and have North Korea add to the mix if this deteriorates? 
That's a great point, Peter. And I, and I think as you kind of watch North Korea, um, Korea, again, is playing a very uh, good balancing act of playing both China and the U.S. Uh, obviously, the sanctions led by the U.S. have been cutting into uh, North Korea for a long time, and they'd like to see those go away. At the same time, they know that China has been their main supporter, main supplier across a globe that does not support them in, in almost all ways. So they play off that, and you see what will happen is um, uh, Kim Jong-un will deal with President Xi before the U.S. comes over. There's some signals that go there on who's pulling the strings and who's got the influence. Uh, and then the U.S., through their negotiations, uh, to reduce the nuclear weapons, as we watch that go on, it has its ebbs and flows. We think we're moving closer to a deal, uh, many of it because of the actions of the two presidents. And then just recently, we followed it up with more uh, missile launches. The key part of the missile launches, though, these are shorter range missiles. These are the, not the long range missiles that the U.S. has been concerned with that would threaten the United States of America um, that would fly intercontinentally. So President Trump just recently, I think last week, kind of dumbed down those missile launches. Uh, he talked this week about the letter that uh, um, Kim Jong-un had sent to him and the possibility of uh, starting negotiations between the two presidents again. So I think that's a, a step again by President Trump to kind of try to ratchet down the friction and in the, in the larger sense of this, it does tie back to China and the competition that we are having with China. That if we can maintain um, negotiations with Korea, kind of keep that in the box, keep slowly moving forward, that gives us more influence in the region, in a region we're competing very heavily with China. Thank you, General Walsh, and thank you to Peter and Rachel as well for contributing to this conversation. As always, we love sharing our geopolitical and macro strategy content with our clients and friends. If you have a desire to engage with our team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.